Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, we have Corey Slezinger, the head of strength and conditioning at the Phoenix Suns. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to announce that we have just launched the Informed Performance Education Platform. If you go to our website, informedperformance.com, then you'll see that we are releasing webinars and online courses for you to enjoy. We have lined up some world-class practitioners to present and teach our courses, and we'll be kicking off with a two-part webinar from former podcast guest Ian Gatt, who will be teaching the sporting hand and wrist. Ian will be breaking this webinar into two parts. The first will be on non-traumatic hand and wrist injury management on the 26th of October, and the second will be on traumatic hand and wrist injuries, with the date to be announced over the next few days. The hand and wrist is an area that many physios and physical therapists avoid or feel less confident treating, but they can make up to 25% of sporting injuries. So try our webinar series with Ian to make hand and wrist injury management simple at long last. Our webinars and courses do not require any membership or long-term subscription commitments, so you can just pick the content that appeals to you on a plug-and-play basis. Head to our website, informperformance.com, to see the details. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest, and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance, and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and here is today's guest, Corey Slezinger. Corey, welcome to the show, mate. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, absolute honor, Andrew. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, we spoke uh, briefly on the phone yesterday and luckily I think we cut it pretty short because as a host, I feel like I sometimes have a really good chat to people ahead of them coming on the show. And then that first chat alone could have been a good episode in the first place. So uh, I think we've saved some gold for today, but yeah, it's good to have you on. Um, can you can you kind of tell the listeners your story, I guess, like your background? So how you got into the performance industry and you know what you've done through to where you are today? Yeah, I started off actually playing college basketball, so that helped. Um, I, it helped a lot more than I actually thought it would. But keep in mind, I also played the lowest level of college basketball. Like I call it extra high school basketball, to be honest with you. Like it was, I, I was very fortunate to be seen and to be uh, recruited to this small little school in Kentucky. Uh, but to be honest with you, that particular school allowed me to do everything that I'm doing today. Uh, it's called Berea College. It's in Berea, Kentucky, small little, small little liberal arts college. But the coolest thing about this school was they would actually pay for me to go do internships. So most of the time in strength and conditioning, we're all like, oh, we got to go do volunteer internships. How are we going to make it? I'm going to sell my kidneys so that I could you know, pay for rent. <laughs> uh, luckily, this school actually paid us from their, um, from their pockets to be able to have these experiences. And so that will, allowed me to keep afloat so that I was able to have some really, really unique uh, touches and strength before I even graduated school. And so my very first stop was at Wake Forest University. And I sent out, I can't even, 
I kid you not, 75 emails at least to Division One schools because at the time I thought, oh, well, I couldn't play at the Division One level. That's still got to be the highest level of sport and it's got to be the highest level of strength coaches. Thus, I need to make it to this level. So I sent out 75 emails to Division One schools and only one got back to me and it was Wake Forest and Ethan Reeve, um, Godson, and that gentleman uh, thought it was okay for me to come through and learn from him. And so I'm forever, ever thankful for him letting me come into his, his dojo. But that's where I started as an 18-year-old. Um, so coming in after my, my freshman year in school, I was able to actually train and learn and actually hoop with the guys too, which was nice. But that was my first start in strength. And so the coolest part is I got to work in football. And so football and basketball. So when I went back to school, and keep in mind, it's the lowest level of college basketball. We don't have strength coaches. We had one athletic trainer for the entire school. So um, I was promoted to a player slash strength coach. So from that point on, I was now training my fellow teammates, which the rationale and the things that I thought were working <laughs> and using is, is laughable now. Uh, but I've been coaching ever since I was 19 years old. Um, and so that's the lucky thing that being at that level, it allowed me to have these experiences early. And so going into the next summer, I was able to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And uh, that's where I, I met my mentor, Jonas Serration, who's still he, he, he holds the highest honor to me. I mean, it's one of the most brilliant people I know. And, and, and I thank him every day for everything he's done for me. But that's where I actually learned about training. Like that's where I understood the meticulous details and the more holistic approaches to training. And that's where I got more. I, got, I started with Olympic lifting at Wake Forest, but that's when I got a little bit more detailed about, well, there's there's an actual technique and there's an execution that has to be done. And that's where I learned the most as far as being able to progress as a strength and conditioning professional. So by the time I even left my undergrad, so by the time I was 21 years old, I've already had two experiences at two high level division one programs and concurrently playing as a collegiate basketball player. So I got very, very fortunate in my early stages. And from there I was able to secure a GA, a graduate assistantship down at Campbell University, which is a low major uh, division one school and uh, fighting camels, <laughs> great mascot. But that's where it was the another blessing because that place I was given six teams working with 150 athletes, assisting with football. And I just came out of my undergrad program. So as far as trial by fire, I mean, it was amazing. Having that high volume of athletes, I was able to truly understand and truly prioritize the the thing, the meat and potatoes, the things that actually create stress response adaptation. And you know, for that level of athlete, what they really needed was was just simple general training, general strength training, and the amount of progression that you can see just from barbell exercises alone at that level, and just the simplicity of what we were able to do mainly because of the constraints environmentally that we were all placed in it. I look back at those times and go, maybe, maybe that was the best training or uh, coaching I've ever done. And so that's where I, I look back and I think goodness for those moments. I mean, that was, that was such a great, 
great experience to to truly understand you know simplicity and to see how much juice you can squeeze out of just a few movements um yeah you mentioned uh rewinding a little bit there you mentioned that when you got your you know your kind of like your first like proper if we call it that snc experience you you started to appreciate you know more holistic details in training um it just kind of just springs to mind you know holistic is all encompassing but a lot of us use this word you know a lot of the time you know as a coach how do you kind of you know, what does holistic mean to you what what goes under that umbrella for you when you're you're thinking holistically as a coach when you're writing a training plan oh thank you for stopping me in the middle of my rant because that's such a good question um because I agree with you, like you wonder, like people say holistic, but what did they actually mean? And uh, for me, what holistic means is looking at all other disciplines or movements and arts and how do they, how do they create their success within their realm? For example, low level or uh, gymnastics, um, jujitsu, judo, um, aikido ballet, um, boxing, taking things from all these other sub-disciplines or all these other disciplines, I should say, and then understanding why they train the way they train for their intent and being able to pull from those resources and, and have this grand, this mass of information of training of how they, why they do barefoot training or why they do grappling this way. And then now trying to find a way to apply it to your very specific population, which of course mine is basketball. And that's when you, you see big gaping holes in general athleticism. And that's where I, I've stolen so much from all of these disciplines of arts and all these other categories of sports to be able to fill in some of these gaps for these athletes that I work with because they're very special. And I think that's a very important point to make is you know, the athletes that I work with, they're outliers. I mean, they're, they're genetically different than a lot of other athletes out there, mainly because they're extremely long levered athletes. And most of them that make it to a, high, a higher level are very elastic and reactive. And so basically that's like deer, you know, like they're made up kind of like deers and they, they float when they move that you're, especially your really good ones. And so now being able to understand, and that's where some of the arts come in and that's where some of, um, and the things that they need, right? Because the environment itself, basketball is played on a hardwood surface. And if you're playing on a hardwood surface, you probably don't want to fall down on it too often. Same as when they're growing up, they played on asphalt or they played on concrete. Not many people are interacting with the ground that much, but in the sport where they're jumping and cutting violently and there's so much contact, especially in the air, some of the best strategies to save them is to actually teach them how to interact with the ground. And that's where it started for me was, I mean, once again, going back to my first experience at Wake Forest University, uh, I was watching the football team warming up and I see the strength coach doing uh, cartwheels and somersaults with 300 pound linemen. And I thought that was pretty curious. I had no idea why they would do something like that. And I go over and ask him, I'm like, so why are, why are they doing cartwheels? Like, are we just goofing off having a good time? He goes, Corey, no, like they fall, they get hit. Their feet go over their head. Don't you think they need to know where they are in space? And it just, I mean, at the age of 18, my mind was blown already. 
thinking about all these other aspects of athleticism that I wouldn't think because at the time and what most strength coaches maybe never get away from is thinking, how does this relate to my sport? How is this sport specific? Well, sometimes they're so specific in their sport that maybe you need to do the exact opposite of their sport. And that's how you bring up their general athleticism for longevity and durability. No, good job, mate. I think uh, I put you on the, I put you on the spot by asking you that question about uh, about being holistic. And I think I like that you said about um, you know pulling influences from uh, you know broader sports or broader things because I think like I don't know about you, but having worked in multi sport, the more different sports you work in or the more influences you have, when you find yourself with a new sport or new athlete or a new uh, new movement pattern and quality, I think it's easier to um, adapt to that new environment or, um, you know, uh, link ideas together quicker when you find yourself in a new space. For sure. I mean, if you think about how most sports are, are made up of, they're made up of extremes. Like if you think about volleyball, you have uh, the libero, right? She's probably the shortest girl because she's doing the most of the digging. And then your hitters are probably pretty tall and athletic. Well, that's kind of the same in basketball. Your point guard is generally kind of small. And then your your forwards and your bigs are kind of big. Same thing in football. Your wide receivers or your DBs and your safeties are pretty small, but they're super agile. And then you have your offensive defense alignment that are refrigerators. Like These are the things that we find in sports that even within the same sport, there are extremes. And if you're not pulling from other disciplines to understand how that can fit within those extremes, then maybe you're doing a disservice, you know, and that's where I find myself always digging in different avenues. And I, and I bring art up all the time because movement is king and it doesn't matter where it comes from. If it comes from break dancing or it comes from ballroom dancing, you know, at the end of the day, movement's movement. And it just, it what matters is how the context of what, how it's accomplished. And then that, that's, that was the lucky part of moving into my next um, venture was after I finished up that time at Campbell University, I went straight to the Olympic Training Center for an internship. And wow, that was right before the, the, the London Games, so 2012. And that's where I got to see the best athletes in the world, literally months prior preparing for the Games. And that was probably one of the coolest experiences. Uh, the best part was there was the weightlifting hall right in the double doors that connects to sports performance. So as soon as I was done with my assignments, I just bust in there and watch the Olympic lifting athletes, the Olympic, the weightlifting athletes actually doing weightlifting in their environment. And I thought that was one of the coolest experiences ever. But once again, like looking at extremes, you'd be able to see bobsledding. I was able to see wrestling. Uh, I was able to see all these these amazing sports take place at the highest level. So I'd peep in and pop in however I could to just watch them in their element. And when you see it on TV, it's just a totally different animal. But, you know, that's, that's where once again, like tapping on that holistic, but man, to be honest with you, that was a short stint. That was a really short stint. I was only there for about four or five months. And then I somehow, well, actually I know how, but I landed my first job and it was at a low major school in uh, Northern California, division one school called Santa Clara university. And the only reason why I got that job is because five other people declined that job because <laughs> <laughs> they just weren't paying, you know, and it's a WCC school and it's in the most uh, expensive zip code in the entire country next to Manhattan. 
So I was obviously so young and naive. I had no idea I would have signed any dotted line. But look at me now. I'm basketball, you know, at a division one school at the age of 23. Let's go do this thing. And I was super pumped. So I get out there and uh, that's when it truly was, you know, the, the, the weightlifting hall, the powerlifting gym. Like that's when I took those very, very just simple means, took it with me. But now I had, what, 30 athletes to work with. So men's and women's basketball. So then I got to be a little bit more technical. And that's when I got to get a little bit more fancy. And I was able to, to look at other training means, you know, and, and methods. And that's where some strongman stuff came in, you know. And that's where, once again, working with lower ma- low, low major college basketball at the time, like they're, they're not the most skill or they do have a lot. They do have skill. They just don't have as much as the Division One schools or the, the high majors that are getting recruited, you know, your all, McDonald's All-Americans. But more importantly, they don't have the size. Like that's the reason why they're not recruited, right? They're undersized. They might have had the skill to be comparable, but they just didn't have the size. So at that school, like, yeah, bigger, faster, stronger, like in that in that environment, that's what won. And that was the interesting thing about Santa Clara and that I loved. And the best part, I had nothing. I literally was making Craigslist back alley deals to get strength equipment. I had a $5,000 a year budget, $5,000 to buy new equipment, Con Ed, all that. You know, and that's that was the greatest part about Santa Clara was I it was back to having nothing, but I was in control of everything. And after the uh, two or yeah, it was two years there. I went to the University of Alabama, Birmingham. And man, that's that was if I was looking back, like some of the most fun times of my life, UAB was definitely it. Uh, But that's where I got some real freaky athletes for the first time, you know, like in my own. And Man, that Olympic lifting I was doing, it it was okay, but it wasn't it wasn't the bee's knees. Like I started finally understanding or finally starting to realize that, you know, my best athletes, like the ones that are like the freakiest, the ones that jump the highest, the ones that are the best basketball players, why do they suck so much at these Olympic lifts? Like I'm like square peg in a round hole them to death with snatch complexes and clean complexes. And don't get me wrong, they got pretty comparable at it. But the problem is we'd hit like, you know, 185 pounds on X exercise. And then I would have to just pull resources from them just to get to 190, 195. You know, and then a year later, it's like, okay, we tapped 200. And I'm like, dang, a year later, like, am I a good string coach? Am I programming or periodizing correctly? Like, whatever, you know. And then I and then I get to go to Stanford. And uh, Stanford, that was that was probably the most pivotal point in my career as far as the things I had access to and the resources, the more importantly, the resources that I had. And it wasn't resources as in money, because that was the last thing I had, believe it or not, at Stanford. But the resources that I had was just brilliant minds around me. And for that example, like going into like an actual like equipment that I had, I finally got introduced to force plates. And this whole time I'm like training the guys for the first six to seven months and they're super competent human beings. I mean, obviously they're at Stanford for a reason, right? They know how to jump through hoops and they know how to listen. They know how to execute. So I was able to advance my super advanced Olympic lifting with them <laughs> in six months. And the problem was we, we got up to those numbers pretty fast, but then they staled just like they did at UAB. And I was like, man, why, like, why am I going to have to, 
like, man, we're really going to have to work up to these singles for me to even like get that kind of response. And then I finally get them jumping on force plates and I'm like, huh, jump height's really not changing that much. I'm like, eccentric RFD, that's not changing that much either. Concentric impulse, eh. And then I started realizing, I'm like, oh my God, these Olympic lifts, like after probably the first few progressions and then first jumps in load, they're not putting force into the ground anymore. They're actually just manipulating themselves around the bar to execute the task that I'm asking them to do. They're becoming efficient. And I'm like, oh my God, I've done this wrong for so many years. And I look back and so I had to have some some deep thought and I had some, some external help. And I started thinking deeply, like how am I going to be able to to, to, to train these guys to be able to put force into the ground. And so obviously, you know, your med ball throws, your plyometrics, you know, but the problem with, you know, plyometrics, especially with basketball players, is they already do a, a ton of that already. So why am I going to make them do more? I'm going to put them at risk. So what I needed was like more load, but I needed it in a more controlled means without beating up their joints. And so I was thinking, well, I saw – I, I walked into the weight room one day and I saw this, uh, I saw, I finally got trap these nice trap bars in and I'm like, well, there's gotta be something else you can do with these things other than row them, hinge them, you know? And so then I started playing around with these trap bar variations and that's where I had another like aha moment. Like, Oh, I can do Olympic lifts. I'm just going to do them with a trap bar. And so, you know, seven you know years ago, I'm doing all these trap bar variations that become popular on Instagram. Um, that's all these trap bar clean pulls, all these trap bar cleans, these drop jumps, these all these things I'm doing with trap bars. And all of a sudden, those force plate numbers change pretty damn fast. And I'm sitting there like, bro, I just I care about load because I'm a meathead. So I had guys at like 80 kilos cleaning to now all of a sudden within a week or two, I have them with 120 kilos trap bar clean pulling the same velocities that they were were attempting to clean with lighter weight. And so that's when I, that was probably one of my biggest aha moments was man, the Olympic list. Don't get me wrong. I still love doing them to this day. I think there's a lot of great benefits to them from a coordination and all that aspect, but as it directly relates to sports and if I'm trying to prepare athletes for sport, it's probably not the best means and with the most uh, efficient use of my time. Yeah, it's a mean of its own, isn't it? I think in the end, um, when you do those movements, when when did you go? Because you're at the you're at the Suns now. When did you go? When did you go pro? If we call it that, yeah, yeah, went went pro, got drafted. <laughs> uh, that was so. I spent three years at Stanford at that point, um, or that was my first year at Stanford, and I finally came to that conclusion. And then uh, two more years on the run, so three years I was at Stanford, and then. So now that puts us at uh, two years ago. I'm going into my third season now with the Suns. Nice. So you know you've you've worked in college sport, and you now obviously work in in elite professional sport at the at the Suns. And a, a big theme of what I want to talk to you about today is kind of going through your coaching career journey, and and obviously you've given us uh, some nuggets there about it. But I, I just want to know kind of what have been some big methods, beliefs, or tools that you've, you've used and applied initially? Um, you know, those aha moments, uh, things that you put a lot of stock in at the time, but then 
as you progress, you maybe get this broader perspective uh, where you've changed your mind potentially. So, you know, for this episode, as something a bit different, let's go through this kind of narrative from your early coaching days through to your pro days. And, um, you know, what have been these kind of beliefs, ideas or methods that have changed? And, and obviously you touched on upon a few then, but, you know, what kind of training things have been, you know, really bold, absolute, you know, I'm going to do this, this is great. And then you kind of zoom out and go, actually, this is where it goes into perspective. Oh, man, I got, I got multiple categories for this one. Um, I'll start with something a little bit different than what we were briefly talking about. I was super anti-sport specific early in my career because I'm like the sport itself is specific enough. Right. And then obviously it's environment based. Right. In NCAA, I was allowed, what, six hours a week to work with athletes. So the last thing I'm going to worry about is more specific work with them. I need it. And they're weak as piss anyway. So I just got to get them generally strong, generally do some good sprinting with them, some jumping, and then they'll be they'll be fine. And that did work to to a certain degree. But that's the thing that I think evolved the most is, you know, working with higher level athletes and working with athletes that are like very, very good at what they do. The more and more I realize they're just they're super finely tuned, just like an indie car. You know, like when I had most of my college athletes, you know, they're Honda Civics, like, you know, I put some gas in them and, you know, maybe I put a cute little spoiler on them and it's still a Honda Civic. Right. And I could do almost anything with them and they'll be, they'll still be a Honda Civic the next day. They'll still take me to work right back and forth. But when you get these like super like rare athletes, like the ones that are just, wow, just gifted, then you start going, oh no, like those means can mess them up. And it's almost like subtraction. And so that's where I go, well, maybe general preparation is not what they need as much of. What they really need is, is very specific things. And that's where I love a lot of the positional isometrics. And that's something that I've changed in my, in my philosophy that I did in college. But once again, there's an age thing there too, right? Like when they're young, they're plastic. You can do anything you want with them. Stress response adaptation. They can concurrently get better at sport as well. Um, but in the pros of obviously with the amount of competition, the older the athlete is, I have to be very specific with what I do with them. So then a lot of the stuff actually complements what they do and what they're special at. And then as their recovery, what I really do is that's when I give them the things that they're not so good at. So just they're very general athletic, like crawling patterns and climbing and things that are just to make you a good human. But that's the thing that I would say is probably one of the biggest aha moments was, you know, the difference between college and athletics is, or professional sports is, you know, like I like, like I'm a lot more sports specific than I used to be. I think within that, I think um, one of the things that springs to mind is, you know, we can talk about like an athlete's training age. Um, but I, I don't think that an athlete's training age runs on like a calendar year. I think, uh, it can change pace for different athletes. And I think it, some athletes progress through their training blocks and their training age quick and other, quicker than others, depend on the, like, you know, their coordination or depending on their genetics. And, you know, you raised a couple of times today, like the, the difference having like, uh, you know, a freak athlete makes to how quickly they progress with loads or, um, I think training age we speak about, but we don't credit like the, um, the speed that someone can transition through different training ages is it can be different. For sure. I mean, the thing that I saw in college the most was my guys that were great. As soon as they came in, they peaked early. 
you know, yeah. they were, they were more mature. <laughs> like they were more physically mature as freshmen, but my like children, like my Bambies, you know, the ones that came in with like, they looked like they had a training age or a physical age of 15, but they're 18 year olds. Those were the ones that I was, I was scared of the most because those are the ones that I knew had like great potential that I had to be very, very specific with what I did with them because, you know, they were special coming in and they were special for their athletic qualities. The ones that are more physically mature, they, they probably were successful more because of their physical qualities. And of course they had physical qualities as well, but the ones that just came in on skill alone and were like, you know, small training age and like gangly and all that, those are the ones that I was like, Oh, like those are the ones that you got to be really, really uh, careful with. Yeah. And obviously we're going pretty broad on what, um, what examples we're going to kind of talk about through your career, but you know, what else, you know, jumps to mind, what else can we pull out of the hat in terms of like things that have changed over time? Yeah. The aha moments. I mean, obviously the Olympic weightlifting that kind of went to the, (laughs) went to the birds, um, machines, woo, ground-based, you know, to more like open chain, the machine work. Like I, I've, I've definitely 180 on that. Uh, now I love bodybuilding. I mean, that's what I originally got into strength training for to begin with is because for some reason at, you know, the height of five ten and the genetics of a bird, I thought I was going to be able to, you know, look awesome and get into the bodybuilding world. So I became obsessed with machines for my own training as a kid, right. Or when I first started off in training. Um, and then concurrently, you know, that's when I was introduced to, to sport performance. So that's when I was, you know, hitting my cleans, I'm hitting my snatches, I'm hitting my jerks, right? And then I'm coaching those things. But behind closed doors, you know, I was going to the fitness center and I was hammering on machines like you wouldn't believe, right? Because I wanted this aesthetic. I wanted to look this certain way. And so what I ended up doing throughout the years was because of injuries and because of, you know, my, my own <laughs> ego, I was trying to look a certain way. So I got rid of the things that made me athletic and I added more of the things that just made me bulky. And so I truly trained myself out of athleticism. And I look back on that now. I'm like, that was number one, my biggest mistake. Um, But now how does machines go in with athletes? Earlier, you know, my low major guys, mid-major to high major, you know, I would use machines as like, accessory work at the end, right? Or if we're using a leg press, we'll use it as like the end of a session and you know, you're hitting high volume. Now the way I use it in professional sports is I use it th- that as the major means of getting them the highest amount of force or the highest amount of load, I should say. Because that is the safest way of getting my athletes who play a ton of basketball who their number one concern is just tissue quality. It's not learning how to train. It's being able to give them a vessel of load in the safest means methods that I possibly can, which that's where machines make a lot of sense. And so that's where I started using a lot more machines, especially with my higher end athletes in season, mainly because I'm not stealing their resources from you know a neural standpoint i'm actually just trying to get them load so i would say machines is the is, is a big one that i've flipped 180 on as well yeah i think like i'm similar to you and i think i i look at machines more so now as a place to get maybe you know this kind of targeted tissue adaptation or targeted load effects and then uh, i see the kind of the you know the barbell the plyometric or the med ball maybe is 
as a place to express force and, and movement and use those kind of upgraded uh, anatomical parts that you've worked on on the machines. Exactly. And once again, it's professional sports. So how much more athleticism am I giving uh, the best athletes in the world? Yeah, I'm giving more targeted tissue work so they can keep doing what they do. That's so special. Right. And then in college, it's the exact opposite. College like, oh, no, no, you got to get you got to get good. And the best part about that. And this is where college strength coaches. I'm just going to go ahead and call you out right now. It doesn't matter what you do. They're going to get bigger, faster, stronger because they're so plastic. Trust me, I know. I did everything. <laughs> so, like, I did Olympic lifting, the powerlifting, to bodybuilding, I, I, and, and a mixture of all of that together. Like, it all works. It's just to what degree does that work? Yeah, and obviously, you know, amongst the two examples we've got so far, we've got this. Um, uh, I guess training specificity comes under programming as an example, and and then we've got kind of like equipment usage with machines. Um, testing is obviously a big thing these days. Is there things in the testing space that's, or the monitoring space that's changed for you over time? Because that's somewhere that gets a lot of attention these days. For sure. Um, yeah, I'll go with some stories <laughs> that tell you about how testing has worked and not worked for me. Does that work? Yeah, no, completely. All right. Um, so my first few months at Stanford, I didn't have force plates. We were just hearing that we were acquiring them. Right. But unfortunately, at that time, I had a, had an athlete who's having reoccurring ankle injuries. Right. And in the college world, it's pretty simple. Right. You have sports medicine who probably runs, you know, your return to play and then sports performance. You know, once they're ready for that, then then they can return. Well, the problem was like we were in season. Things were happening too fast. We didn't have a proper objective measure to say, is this guy ready from elastic standpoint, like is his elastic qualities back so that he can actually go out there and do some stuff. And so what I did was I took, um, you know, those like industrial weight scales. Yeah. So I used that and I rigged it up underneath a rack and that's how I did. That's how I did IMTP for the first time or overcoming ISOs. And so I used the watt of the tonnage as my metric. So I'll do like a single leg stance, uh, rip into the rack and I would get asymmetries left and right. And then I'd put him in a uh, bent knee state. So almost like a, like a seated calf raise and I'd have him do the exact same thing put as much force into that industrial weight scale as possible. And I would use the tonnage of that to be able to monitor his return to play. And to be honest with you, I still look at that and that was probably the best thing I've ever used. Do you but still use it or not, you not, not yeah. in that extent, but yeah. I do have, I have force plates that I can do the exact same thing with. Yeah. And then obviously I can get more velocity based stuff. Like I can actually do a counter movement jump and et cetera, et cetera. But that's where that was the monitoring thing that I look back on. And I'm like, man, that's all I really, not, not saying that's all you need, but man, like for people that are listening that are in their high school settings or, you know, don't have access to these things, you know, an industrial weight scale, you can do a lot with that. And you can get very specific. I mean, you can do your ash testing for your shoulder health. You can, you can do a lot of the things that these NOR boards and stuff are doing, and you don't have to pay all that money. Um, sorry to the sponsors. But <laughs> that's one thing that I think um, that I look at monitoring. Um, but also, um, I was introduced to Connexon. We were the first collegiate team to have Connexon when I was at Stanford. And we could actually do in-game tracking. And so a lot of 
GPS. You can't do a lot of in-game tracking unless the NBA, they allow second spectrum. But in uh, college, you know, that time they, they weren't really worried about you monitoring guys in the games. And so the thing that I look back on as far as the monitoring is concerned from there was actually looking at what happens in the game. And that was probably one of the most mind-blowing experiences for my coaches was from getting them to understand what loads they're applying them in practice and how little relevance it had to the game and how it was actually counterintuitive. Um, Do you think that having worked in basketball both with and without that monitoring piece, do you feel like your former techier experience being able to monitor has given you maybe like a better barometer now when you watch a game in the NBA to sort of like uh, intuitively assess the loading of the game? 100%. I mean, playing college basketball, don't get me wrong, like, you, you you have a feel, like you understand what, what movements are happening. But then again, like it's still such a far way away from finals NBA basketball. Um, but just even that aspect alone, having experience playing at a higher level in the sport, that's, that's you know, domino number one. Domino number two is being able to do it, to try to monitor without any tech. And to be able to use common sense and being able to be a good human and to understand, like, if your guys are fatigued, why are they fatigued? Can we actually understand the environment or the constraints of the practice? Do we have proper work to rest ratios? Are we just trying to get these guys fit by burying them? You know, these are the things that if you can do and just use, you know, size, for example, like just the the size of the court and the players that are in it. There's only a certain amount of things that can happen. For example, if I'm playing five on five in a quarter court scenario, well, there's not so much movement that can happen because there's not enough space and there's too many athletes in that space. So I don't have to worry about high forces, right? I don't have to worry about high plyometric actions, right? Or reactive forces. The only thing I really have to worry about is contacts. So then if you open it up and now we're playing one-on-one in the full court, well, man, they got all the opportunity in the world to hit high speeds. So now I truly understand that, wow, like, they're able to create a lot of force. They're going to be able to, they're, they're probably going to be hurting tomorrow, right? I'm probably really taxing them playing one-on-one full court. Now just taking those two extreme examples and being able to extrapolate all the drills that you're running in practice and just base it off space that you're playing it in and the amount of athletes that are in it. And if it's live or not live, you can probably do some pretty damn good monitoring with just those aspects alone. And mm-hmm. one of my cheat sheets that I loved at Stanford once again, this might be just like, you know, monitoring for dummies or monitoring for, for the poor <laughs> is <laughs> basically, and that's probably the worst way to put it, but <laughs> no, um, I like that. <laughs> monitoring for the poor. I love it. Um, was what I would do is based off of those parameters alone or those variables alone, I would go down the drill sheet or I'd go down the practice plan and I would give it a number four being the highest, one being the lowest. And all I would do is multiply that number by the time that we were actually in that drill. And then I would accumulate that number at the end of practice. And that was my practice load. And looking at the connects on data, it was damn on. It, it was, it was on, it was impressively on. And I'm like, wow, I'm, I didn't need this GPS system to make that happen. You know? So obviously you've, you know, over the span of your career, collegiate and pro, you've worked with lots of different sports and you now work in a sport where the training schedule and therefore the kind of timing of how much work you can do and when you do it is affected. 
Uh, and we just had Daniel Bovon, your good friend, who spoke a little bit about that and in the terms of training on game day. But, you know, over your career, how has your perception changed, if it has, on how much work you can throw at an athlete and when you time it around schedules? Well, first off, Daniel Bove is probably one of my favorite human beings in all of performance. Uh, I, I'm so happy I got to at least have one year with him because um, I think two years would have been dangerous. But I'm so happy that me and him had one year together. And we're, he, he's, he's an incredible human being. And go buy his book. He's, he's amazing. But um, as far as what's changed the most, it, it's simply outputs. You know, in the college setting, I trained for outputs. I trained for them to be bigger, faster, stronger. So I needed objective means to say that's happening. And for that to happen, you got to go into the tank and train. And because of the competition schedule and the practice schedule, it allowed it. You know, we only had two games a week. You know, the worst thing that we experienced, which is kind of tough, is three games in three days. But that's once a year, and that happens for a competition tournament. But other than that, that is the extent of, you know, how intense uh, – uh, a competition period can be. And then you had off season. And so you actually had off season where the guys were there all off season. And so that I had dedicated time to train them for these adaptations for them to get bigger, faster, stronger. Now, fast forwarding to the NBA, uh, it's exact opposite. We have more competitions than practice and our competition season is so long and our off season is so short. And so brilliance to both, and I'm just going to echo what he says, you have to train on game day. It, it, like, if you look at it from a 72 game this past season, which was condensed down with more double-doubles than any other time in NBA history, to now going into next season with a shortened offseason coming off the finals, and they're hurrying it up and we're now starting even earlier, so it's going to be an 82-game season. I have, I, I, like, What am I supposed to do? as far as getting them, quote unquote, bigger, faster, stronger. So it doesn't really come down to that. What it comes down to is their ability to play the game truly, their ability to play and be able to repeat their efforts. Now, as much as I want to get guys awesome, as much as I want them looking you know, bigger, faster, stronger, and feeling better, the reality is it's probably not going to happen. The reality is I got to find, and this is the most beautiful part about being in professional sports in this particular environment is we are truly trying to chase down the holy grail of minimal effective dosage. Now, is anyone close? Doubt it. But that is like the goal is minimal effective dosage. In college, mine was like, ah, you know, they're plastic, they're young. I can give them the world and they'll be back tomorrow and we'll just do the same thing. And so that was the greatest thing about those athletes now coming into, into this world, it's older athletes. They, they span in such different ways. And at the end of the day, those, those outputs, I don't train for outputs. I, I think that's a big, that's a big, or that's a dangerous area, especially in season training, which is eight months, nine months out of the year. Um, I train for their ability to have targeted tissue adaptations, and I train for their ability to continue doing what they do. So I would say to sum it up quickly, outputs in college, inputs in professional sports. I love that. That's a nice way to phrase it. Um, you know, there's lots of examples we probably could go into, but we've kind of just picked a few from different categories, if we call it that. Um, 
what are the sort of like big rocks or what big concepts have you uh, have now stood the test of time for you? Like, where do you, where do you put the most stock now when you're training athletes? Uh, you know, microdosing as far as programming, uh, something that I adopted at Stanford uh, and mainly is because of the environment. Once again, environment's everything. Um, the ability of doing uh, high frequency training um, during or for in season. And most of the time you hear like, oh, we're in season training. We're doing it. We're going to lift one to two times a week. And it's like, I, I take the exact opposite approach. I'd rather have the shortest amount of time with them, but I'd rather do it five to six times a week. Um, because once again, we're chasing that, that holy grail of minimal effective dosage. No, I, I kid you not. I have, I had six dudes last season that would actually technically train three times in one day. And it's because that's what our environment allowed. And because if I, if I combined those sessions into one session, then that would rip their resources away from allowing them to do what they're there to do, which is the sport. And that will also have a negative effect later because of that condensed amount of stress in such a, in such a period of time. And so all I'm doing is taking their volume and intensity and spreading it out as far and few between or as far and as much as possible. And that's one thing that is the difference between that. That's like big rocks for me is I, I'm a huge proponent in sports, team sport, individual sport, whatever, high, high frequency uh, sessions, um, especially during the competition period. Yeah, I think it makes sense. Like physiologically, I think you get probably, and this is anecdotal, I think you probably get better cell signaling for what you're trying to achieve in the tissue or muscle or whatever you're dealing with. And then I think, I, I just think you get better skill acquisition and it's, it's time efficient, isn't it as well? I think it just hits a lot of things in a Maybe. really um, thoughtful way. You nailed it. Skill acquisition. Because if we're doing these bigger, faster, stronger sessions, supposedly, and then I got to get you to go do your sport, once again, it's an indie car. Like I'm dealing with like the most finely tuned athletes in the world. If one bolt is off, everything is off. <laughs> That's the reality of the situation. In college, it's different. Like everything is just still gross motor patterns, in my opinion. You know, and then they're so plastic, like they're so like young, they're able to handle those large amounts of stress. And with that, my last off season leaving Stanford. Like we trained five to six times a day or five to six times a week in in season uh, at Stanford. And of course we trained on game day in the off season. We only trained three times a week and everybody, that's when usually everybody trains four to five times a week. But what we did is we had almost like two hour long sessions though. And it's because I wanted that inflammation. I want, you needed that recovery. Because those are, that's how it's high volume and high intensity. And so what the offseason looked like was the exact opposite. At the, at the beginning of this episode, I put you on the spot. And I want to go full circle and put you on the spot to finish up, Do it. Um, if you don't mind. What, um, what, at, what keeps you up at night now? What, um, what training concepts or methods or um, sports science performance um, ideas keep you up at night and and what do you want what are you on the fence what are you sat on the fence for at the moment what are you trying to make your mind up on um oh okay so this is my favorite i love talking theory 
because I am uh, everyone else that I know is or that especially in the sports science is so like black and white and objective. And me, I'm like, let's just let's just float in the gray and we'll figure it out from there. For me, I, I have a I have a strong interest in these very very spe- sports specific isometrics. Like I, I really want, I'm really curious about horizontal vector isometrics, um, as like the major means of training, uh, mainly because I, I, I theorize that most most injuries we train in the vertical vector constantly in weight training. Why? Because we can load it the most. Why? Because that will cause the most tissue adaptation. Well, is that necessarily the same as if I had less of that, but in the proper vector? And so I'm curious, like, and once again, this is all experiment. This is all like, I'm tinkering with all sorts of weird stuff that I'm trying to, I'm trying to bring that to light. or I'm trying to, I'm trying to paint that canvas, if you will, because right now, like it's in my head how I'm going to get into these certain positions and how I'm going to load it efficiently and effectively. And then of course, how am I going to progressively overload it over time? But I'm, I'm having, that's what's keeping me up at night right now. Like that's the thing that I'm excited about and that I'm trying because when I look at injuries, I mean, 90% of them are in, the, are in a different plane or they're in a different vector than what we actually train them for. And so that's what keeps me up at night is, well, then why are we applying all these sagittally based and vertical vector based um, uh, training methodologies if that's what is not happening? So if I'm truly reverse engineering what's happening in sport, then I'm not doing that when I'm doing these different or these same training methods. Yeah, and I think we we touched upon this on the, on the first time we spoke, didn't we? About um, you can take a say a basketball player who's got clearly a great ability to jump off of one foot and dunk versus sometimes a really poor CMJ. And there's lots that can skew that, but there's not this, there's not a perfect relationship always. No, I mean, that's my biggest argument with monitoring, you know, and, and testing in general is it makes sense if you're the best athlete in the world at a very objective thing, like sprinting, triple jump, you know, any uh, javelin, because there's a direct cause and effect, right? Like did the training I do make me throw it further, run faster or jump higher because they're the most skilled athletes in the world at doing that one, that, that one thing. We work in team sports where there's a high degree of variability of how you obtain success. I mean, the best shooters in the world are not the best jumpers in the world, right? Like, and, and I argue some of these things that we're doing and monitoring thinking that, oh, we'll do a CMJ. Well, CMJ is a skill and and hands on the hips. That's not what they do. So you're taking away some things. And I understand that we're trying to have a control and I understand that we're trying to, to have, you know, we're trying to compare apples to apples, but I, I, a lot of the things I just kind of like, it's with a grain of salt at best. When I look at monitoring truly, unless you are coming from those sports or you have that degree of, 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 execution within the test that you're doing i mean obviously if the the skill component of monitoring or testing can be a bit messy to you know to play devil's advocate here you know you do still want to be objective like you do still want um some objectivity to what you're doing and to assess whether uh, there's risks or whether there's 
uh, improvements in a program say well how do you kind of balance um how do you how do you balance that like you've got this kind of messy skill acquisition on one end versus you do still want to be objective when you can your tests should have zero skill nice yeah simple as that that. you know and that's where i think we screw up the most like for instance an rsi sounds simple it's not like an rsi is not (laughs) simple at all hey jump five times in the same place over and over again but do it as fast as you possibly can as high as you possibly can and let's see how accurate that is like come on what are we doing like that I'm sorry unless you do that daily then I then I'm like okay you you've a, you've you've now accrued enough time within that skill to where you can see changes over time but if you're not if you're doing it once every 3 or 4 weeks then that's that's crap in my opinion you know and and so yeah and then that's the other part is it has to be often whatever you're testing you do it often because then at that point, it's it, it's not enough. I'm uh, I'm aware of time, and, and I know you're a busy man. But um, where's where's like the best place for people to find you? I know you're I know you're active on Instagram, but um, you know, can you tell everyone where's the best place to track you down on online? Yeah, uh, Instagram's probably the best at slash strength s c h l e s strength. Once again, s c h l e s strength. I'm not as active as I used to be, uh, but I'm trying to get back there. It's just, it's, it's tough, man. It's tough. No, brilliant. And may I just, I thank you for coming on. I've, I've really, really enjoyed the conversation with you off air and on air. So yeah, thanks for coming on, mate. It's, it's good to chat to you again. No, absolutely. Thank you so much. Big thanks to Corey for coming on today's show. Love talking shop with him and kicking around what changed over his coaching career so far. As I said before the episode, head over to informperformance.com to check out our new education platform, We'll gradually be releasing more and more educational material to help you manage athletes more effectively across physio, S&C and sports science. That's it for today's episode. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.